morning. Let's begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor, and further us with your continual help, that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name, and finally, through your mercy, obtain everlasting life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, we're working our way through the commandments, Ten Commandments, one by one, and for those of us joining us, um, we are in the final third of the, the catechesis trifecta. We work through the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments as a way into um, believing Christ, um, hoping in Christ through prayer, and then um, belonging or becoming like Christ, um, which, we, which we're talking about in terms of the Ten Commandments. And so we are, we've, we've begun, we've, we've been talking about um, the Ten Commandments as, as a form of law, as a way of um, ordering our lives to be patterned like Christ. Christ is the fullness of, of, of the law, um, of the Ten Commandments. He gives us the clearest picture uh, of what a life pleasing to God looks like. And so we've been talking about... Um, the first commandment uh, is, well, that's, that's, tr- that's true, but in, in its um, Old Testament form, um, that, is, that is Jesus' perfect summary of, of the law. Well done. Uh, so commandment number one is, no other, no other gods, right? Second commandment. No idols. All right. And that, that leads us to number three, uh, about taking the Lord's name in vain. And this is just classic, you know, good King James English version that's just been, it's carried down through. And it's, uh, you know, if you give someone a pop quiz like I'm prone to do at times and, and ask them, you know, list the Ten Commandments, it's a fun thing to do. Uh, you know, you, you, might, you might come up with, um, taking the Lord's name in vain. You know, it's just a great phrase. Uh, but what we're talking about this, so we, we talked about no, having no other gods. Not making an idol is about how we worship. It's what we do with the stuff of creation uh, as it relates to God. This commandment um, teaches us about what we do with our, our words and our actions as it relates to God. And then we'll also um, hopefully dive into the fourth commandment on keeping the Sabbath holy, which is about um, having no other gods in terms of time. So in some ways, all of the commandments are expositing this initial opening prologue, you shall have no other gods. So what does it mean to have no other gods? Well, it means to not have idols. It means to not take the Lord's name in vain. It means to keep the Sabbath holy. All of these commandments are in some ways expositing, expounding upon this one central factum, the given uh, in biblical faith, which is, shall have no other gods. I am the Lord your God. There's one God, and he's, um, and that's it. Uh, and he's made us, and he's called us to, to life and fellowship with him. Uh, but we have no idea uh, how to do that, what that means. And so this is all a form of, a remedial therapy where we're trying to get back to, to having, to living and understanding what it means to have no other gods. 
Um, so we're going we're gonna to focus uh, our, our time this morning on the third commandment. So um, do, do you guys have one of these? Or? There's some available in the back. If, John, if you want to grab one of those for, for our guests, um, we are going to be, what we do is work through these question by question. I ask a question, and then we, we all respond together. And then what we're doing in this time, in this question and answer, this back and forth, we are um, dwelling, we're spending time, we are um, uh, meditating on what each of these aspects of the catechism has for us. So we could, you know, it's one thing to recite the Ten Commandments, to learn the, the words, um, but what we're doing is going kind of one by one, phrase by phrase, and think about what, is this, what does this mean for us? What is God calling us into uh, through, these, through these commands? So we're going to start on page 97 with question 283, the third commandment. So question 283, what is the third commandment? The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And let's go, um, let's read the, the next couple actually. Question 284, why is God's name sacred? God's name reveals who he is, his nature, his character, his power, and his purposes. All forms of God's name are holy. Okay, so this question, this, it, it begins with asking this phrase, well, what is God's name? Right? If, we're, if the command asks us not to take the Lord's name in vain, well, a good logical first question might be, well, what is God's name? <laughs> what is it about this um, name that is worth not taking in vain? Does that make sense? So this, this question asks us, why is God's name sacred? Well, God's name reveals who he is. Right? And going to, this question is actually almost identical to, to a question we asked weeks ago when we talked about the Lord's Prayer. Right? Because one of the one of the one of the things we say in the Lord's Prayer is what? Hallowed be thy name. Right? And so there's there's another place where the question, the catechism asks, well, well, what is God's name? Why this emphasis on the name? You see this language all over the Old Testament. Worship, worship his name, glorify his name. And you're like, that sounds kind of weird. Like, what's with the name? <laughs> Um, and this is, this is because, as the Catechism uses the same language when it talks about the prayer, God's name reveals who he is. God's name reveals his nature, his character, his power, and his purposes. And this is very helpful for us because the kind of God we're talking about here, as we talked about several weeks ago, when we talked about what does it mean to have no other gods and not to worship idols? Well, if that's the case, then the kind of God that we are dealing with is somebody that we don't naturally know in a personal way, right? Because this God isn't, as we said, a kind of God that takes up space in our physical world in the way other things take up space, right? As we said, God is not a thing like other things in the world. 
God is the transcendent source of all things. He's the cause, the reason, the foundation of all existence. So if that's the case, we find ourselves um, like characters in a story trying to figure out who the author of the story is, right? We don't, we don't know who the author of the story is. That, it's just like the author of the story breaking the fourth wall and coming into the story and saying, here I am. Oh, thank goodness. How do we get here? What are we doing in this story? Um, so God's name reveals who he is. Uh, God's nature, by nature, God is, is mysterious. God is that which is beyond being. Um, uh, uh, as St. Anselm famously says, God, the meaning, the very definition of God. What does it mean when I say the word God? Anselm says, that than which nothing greater can be conceived. <laughs> right? Just a great... A, a, a great medieval phrase, that than which nothing greater can be conceived. And what he means by that is if, it, if you can think it, if it's something that you have just absolute grasp of, well, I'm sorry, friend, you're not t- talking about God. You're still talking about something that God has created, right? You're talking about things that occupy space and time uh, in the way that other things do. So God is by nature... Right? It's not something he's like pretending, he's not like hiding behind the bushes and not like letting you see him. God is by nature, through his very being, um, the cause of being, of, of things that exist. So God reveals, his, reveals himself to us by grace, right? It's, a, it's an act of grace that God comes into the story and lets us, lets us know who he is. And he does this through his name, right? You remember Moses at the burning bush, right? God gives him a revelation of his name, and he says, what does he say? I am, I, or I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. All right, so God gives Moses his name, and this is the catechism's pointing, to, pointing you to that little passage in Exodus 3. So God gives his name, and it reveals his nature. He is, he is the one who exists. <laughs> he is the being one, the one who really exists reveals his character as one who is trustworthy, reliable, faithful, just, true. Uh, his power, he is the cause of all things. He is the, the, the mover of, of things in the world. Um, and then his purposes, I will be who I will be for you. I will be your, your creator and your savior. I will, that is God's, all of that is, is, is revealed in God's name. And because of that, we say that God's name is sacred. God's name is, is holy. So if God's name is sacred, right, what does it mean to take God's name in vain? This is question 285. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? Vain means empty, meaningless, and of no account. To take God's name in vain is to treat it as such. I was doing, um, for, for Lent, we were doing the, the Ten Commandments with our, with our kids. Um, and we were, we were just memorizing them. And um, my little five-year-old just, you know, he can remember short little phrases, no other gods, no idols. But for the life of me, he could not get, you shall, take, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He was like, I have no, he just couldn't, couldn't get it. Um, and so it's, 
So he, but he finally came to the, uh, to the phrase, this is how he summarizes it. Um, he says, you shouldn't treat God's name like it doesn't matter. That's it, buddy. You got. <laughs> you shouldn't treat God's name like it doesn't matter. Uh, vain is that great word from um, the book of Ecclesiastes. You remember this? It's litany in, the, in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. Um, that is, everything is vain when uh, you treat it as as God. When you treat it as something that is going to give you give you life and and being. Um, and so Ecclesiastes eventually concludes by saying, you know, the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. Fear God is the, is the beginning of wisdom. But um, everything else in Ecclesiastes is a sort of, a sort of training in, in anti-idolatry, right? It's teaching you uh, uh, what it means to say, to think of the world. Um, but so treating something as vain means empty, meaningless, of no account, to take God's name in vain is to treat it as such, to treat God's name uh, flippantly, uh, to, um, to treat it as the opposite of what is the case, which is that God's name is substantive. God's name reveals who he is. God's name is, is shorthand for God's um, way of being with us in the world. It's the way that God makes himself known in the world. And that is, in fact, what gives meaning to, to all things, right? It's the source of, of, of life and, and existence, right? God's name is how, he, how we know God, right? It's, it's the words that God gives us in order to know him. And so to treat God's name as vain is, is something like to say, well, actually this world is empty, this world is void of sacred meaning, sacred existence. Uh, so again, this is another way of getting us at um, what it means to live in the world where, without idols with, and to be able to say, I shall have no other gods. So to treat God's name in vain is not only about a way of speaking, though it very, very much is that, it's very much entailed in how we live and how our actions and lives speak about God. Um, so there's what we're going to see in the next couple of questions is that taking the Lord's name in vain is, is yes, it's about how we use our words. That's how, we, that's how people know us and, and de facto how people know about God through us. So our words, how we speak, and, and our actions, what we do, all these things represent not only us, ourselves, um, but the God to whom we belong, right? And so we'll get at this, uh, one of the later questions, yeah, question 289, we'll get at this in terms of, of baptism, right? At baptism, we take on a new name, and that name is Christian. Right? It's, it's a marker of, oh, it's a family name, right? We all have family names. The name uh, a Christian is our, is our family name, and so our actions and words speak volumes about uh, the Christ to whom we belong, the Christ whom we follow. So 
if that's what it means to take God's name in vain, question 286 asks, how can you avoid taking God's name in vain? Because I love him, I should use God's name with reverence, not carelessly or profanely. When we, when we talk about those that we care about, when we talk about uh, a spouse, a child, um, a close friend, um, how we talk about those people when they're not there says a lot about what we think about them, doesn't it? Right? We've, we've, we've known people who, uh, who gripe about a, a, a spouse, um, uh, somebody who, who bothers you or nags you or something, or, or a child who always, who always misbehaves. Right? We've seen the way people, you notice when, when other, well, we notice when other people do it more than we ourselves do it. Um, so I use that as an example. You guys don't do this, I'm sure. But um, when you hear other people talk about, a, talk about a spouse or loved one in a certain way, um, you begin to think you can really tell a lot about what that person thinks of their, of their loved one. Because um, how they speak about that person's name, that's, that's, what, that's what we're getting at in this language of um, treating a name reverently versus in vain. How a person speaks uh, about somebody is not just about the words that they're saying, but the words are, are sending out, they're communicating this message about a reality, right? They're communicating something about what you think of this person. Um, so, if, uh, so if somebody, somebody says, oh yeah, yeah Alex, you know, um, how's Molly doing? Oh, she's amazing. She, is, uh, she does this and this, and uh, she's, wow, she's always doing these things for our kids. She's, Doing this, and my goodness, she's like eight months pregnant. She's about to about to pop. You know, you can tell in the way that I'm I'm talking about about her. You can tell what what I think about her versus if I say, "That's oh, good." Uh, she's you know, and she just burns that dinner. And my goodness, it's just oh, mm. you know, when these kind of these kind of things, they're not just about they're not just about the words. The words carry. Uh, sacred, sacred meaning. So the words convey. Our words matter, and our and what we what we say, both with our words and our actions, say what we think about that person in our lives. So just the same is same is true um, with taking the Lord's name in vain. And it, so this question frames us in terms in terms of love, right? Uh, because I love God. I use God's name with reverence, not carelessly or profanely. All right, so these next two questions, you know, expound on on this, asking about what does it mean then, how might we use God's name profanely and carelessly? It uses these two words, profane and careless. So let's look at these. Question 287. How might you use God's name profanely? By the unholy use of God's holy name, especially through perjury, blasphemy, and attributing to God any falsehood, heresy, or evil deed, as if he had authorized or approved them. Okay, so through this, this is what the the catechism is calling using God's name profanely. 
so this is uh, what these questions are getting at is claiming to, this is especially thinking about um, how people speak on behalf of God. So the scriptures have a lot to say about uh, how, what prophets do and how prophets are supposed to speak in God's name. And, um, and this becomes a recurring, recurring issue precisely because we're talking about a God who is, again, beyond being. And so the prophet's role is to speak on behalf of God. And so a faithful prophet will do that well, but a, uh, an unfaithful prophet will claim to be speaking on behalf of God, and yet the, the opposite happens, right? And this can go either way. So in some cases, the prophet will say, um, you know, Calamity is coming. <laughs> you know, turn and re- turn and repent. Right, Israel, uh, remember the law, keep the law, um, and and that w- that will be the the God's word at that time. Um, but at the same time, a, in, in that situation, a false prophet would come along and say, um, you know, God is not coming to judge. He's you're fine. You're doing you're doing great. You're God's people. What are you talking about? Um, and God will say, that's, that's false. And so God gives this, this kind of instruction in the prophets. He'll say, you know, you can tell a prophet by his deeds. You know, if a, prophet's, <laughs> a prophet says something, and then it comes to pass, then God will say, well, then you'll know this is a, this is a, true, a true prophet, a faithful prophet. Um, and and there are but there's other cases in which the the opposite will be the case. Um, the false prophet will be declaring doom and retribution, and uh, and then that's not the case. So there's all this question about prophecy and false prophecy, and this continues on in the New Testament. Um, uh, when the New Testament writers will talk about um, false preachers, right? You'll be you'll hear this language in, in the letters, and we're talking about who are these false preachers. What are they doing? Uh, what this is, is going around, this is people claiming to speak on behalf of God, and yet having no actual grounds to do so, <laughs> not actually communicating on behalf of God. What they're doing is taking the Lord's name in vain. They're using it profanely. They're using biblical language. They're using uh, their uh, divine language. They're trying to get God's backing to get what they want, right? To, to communicate something, to manipulate somebody, to um, claim some sort of power. Whatever the motive is, it doesn't matter. They're using God's name in order to accomplish their own purposes, right? So this is, now, he said, well, that applies to preachers. You know, they better, they better, prophets and preachers. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a preacher. What is, you know? Well, Sadly, or well, happily, uh, you are. <laughs> uh, when you go around uh, uh, as someone who claims to be a Christian, then you are, in a sense, a preacher, right? You, you're, again, your words and your actions proclaim things about God. And so when we use that kind of, when we use um, Bible language in order to manipulate others, to get what we want, to... Um, uh, you know, justify our, our, our causes. 
You say, I mean, this is a classic, a classic move, you know. If you have a righteous cause, then you've got a real cause, right? God's on your side, right? Um, but as we've, as we've come to learn here, the, the, the divine, the creator-creature relationship here is not one in which the cre- creature manipulates the creator uh, to get what they want, right? Um, this, is, this is a relationship that, that we're invited into to, to worship, to praise, to love. Again, you could say this is just, that's um, not what lovers do, right? They don't uh, use the, the backing of, of some, some name. Uh, you know, my dad's going to get you to, to, to get what they want. Um, so we're talking about, so this is one way in which we use God's name profanely, um, attributing to God any falsehood, heresy, or evil deed as if he had authorized or approved them. Okay, so that's, that's one use of, the, of, or one misuse of God's name. Another misuse would be using God's name uh, carelessly. So question 288 asks, how might you use God's name carelessly? Cursing, magic, broken vows, false piety, manipulation of others, and hypocrisy all cheapen God's name. These treat God's name as empty of the reality for which it stands. Once again, this question is it's getting us to think about um, where is God in the world? Where is God in the world? Last time we talked about this in terms of, of materiality. You know, where is God present in, uh, in space, uh, right? He's present in the Eucharist. Uh, he's present in, in, a, in a different way, in images and icons. Right? God's presence pervades creation. This question is getting us, well, where is God present um, in others, in other people, in you? And how is your presence uh, communicating something about God? Is it communicating something that is true and, and right about God? Is, are our lives and, and actions speaking about God in a way that is representative of who God really is, as the scriptures say? Or do we communicate something else uh, about God? Um, I wrestle with this all the time with, um, with uh, parenting, kids especially, right? I want them to behave well, to do good, right? And how do I justify that? How do I get them to do, how do I get them to do well? I thought, this is what God wants, right? This is God's will. You know, this is, wow, you know. And there's a way in which that's true, right? Right? There's... God's will for, for us and for our, our children and, and those that we love is a life of, of holiness, a life of, of, of love, truthfulness, generosity, right? So there's, there's a way in which that's true, right? But there's a way in which you can communicate that that is profoundly false, right? You can uh, communicate to, to your children or, or to those who, whom you know, um, you can communicate them true things in, a, in an untrue way. Does that make sense? You can, uh, you can uh, say things that are true and right about God. God wants you to say, one of my kids breaks something and doesn't want to, doesn't want to tell me. Um, I could tell them that 
God is truthfulness and God wants us to be true. Um, and that's, that's all right and good. But I could also use you know, the divine name to get him to say, to manipulate him into confessing the truth, right? The very subtle ways in which we can, we can take God's name in vain, uh, not only by, by speaking flippantly, but by, um, by speaking about God's name as if it's empty of the reality for which it stands, right? There is a sacredness, not only in immaterial things like the Eucharist, but there is a sacredness uh, in our words. Um, there's a sacredness, uh, and this is, again, a part of God's wonderful creation. He's made us as speaking beings, right? This is the primary way. We can communicate by our, our, our facial expressions. You know, um, I can communicate my anger at Taylor, right? Or, or, uh, or my kindness to, to John, you know, but, uh, right? Um, but primarily, we do, th- do so through our words, right? And, and this is just an amazing way that God has, has created us. He's created us as speaking animals, right? This is not something, um, or, or we don't do this in the same way that other animals do. God has made us, uh, and you could call this part of the divine image or, or what, but God has made us speaking beings who use words in the way that, right, Christ is the word, the logos of God. Christ is God's speech, if you will, and so our speech, our speaking capacity, reflects all of this. Um, and we can use that well, right? We can speak in a way that, that imitates, that, that um, you know, is a reflection of God's speaking in Christ. Um, or we could, we could not. We can do that, do the opposite of that. Um, and, but this is, this is also in terms of, so the Bible phrase this often in terms of, of witness, right? So um, an earlier passage, I think, refers to Romans. Uh, where is this? Romans 2.23. This was uh, back from question 285. So it looks at Romans 2.23 to 24 uh, as a way to, to get in this. So Paul's, you know, this is Paul's part of Paul's critique of, of those who, who keep keep the law. He says, you boast in the law, you that boast in the law. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what Paul's saying here is that those who boast in the law, those who are proclaimed to, to be God's people, the people of the law, those who live on behalf of God, who belong to God, um, if you break the law, this is a, a different part of Paul's argument, but if you break the law, you're not just breaking God's law, you are blaspheming God's name. And he'll say this phrase, uh, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Right? This is reflecting on God's witness, God's action in the world. So um, to translate this in, in, in our terms, when we... Um, do not, don't reflect God's laws, the name of God is, is blasphemed among the Gentiles, right? It's reflecting on who God is. Because why? Christ is the, the perfect image of God, but who else is made in the image of God? We are, right? 
human creatures are made in the image of God, and in Christ, we are especially called, we, that, that image is restored, as we say in baptism. So that image of God is, is uh, maybe defaced or wiped away in, in the fall and sin. Baptism is a way of restoring that image. And, and so in that, in that, that baptized capacity, we are, again, reflecting God's image. What we do, what we say, not just a bearing on us, it's a reflection on, on God's name. Uh, by what we do and what we say, uh, God's name can be proclaimed among the Gentiles, right? Or it can be blasphemed among the Gentiles, all sorts of things in between. So there's lots of don'ts, right, in this, right? But question 289 asks us, okay, what, what then do we do? <laughs> so question 289, how can you honor and love God's name? I honor and love God's name in which I was baptized by keeping my vows and promises, by worshiping him in truth and holiness, and by invoking his name reverently and responsibly. <clears throat> so this adds uh, another dimension that we haven't quite yet talked about yet, and that is worship. So one of the ways in which the Psalms especially will speak of honoring God's name is through worshiping God in holiness and truth. So yes, we, we, we speak well, and we speak uh, honestly. We'll talk one of, in, a, in a later commandment about, um, about lying, <laughs> what that says. But one of the ways in which we honor God's name is to keeping our vows, keeping our promises. Why do we do this? Not only because we don't like it when other people do that to us, right? What is it about keeping vows? Who keeps their, who ultimately keeps vows? God does, right? Yeah, David. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's hard, right? Uh, there's, there's, but why do we? It's, it's hard to keep them, right? But why do we keep vows? The fabric of society will crumble. I know, I know, right? Good. Yes. But why will it crumble? <laughs> I'm like a little kid asking, why, why, why is that? Yes, it's a vow. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The bride, putting in the bride, bridegroom framework. Absolutely. That's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and again, why? It honors God, right? It honors God because God is God is truth. God is. This is this is somewhat in the in the very meaning of the of the of the. Um, of the word for where we get righteousness and justice. What, is, what does this mean, Taylor? Dikaiosune is the word in Greek. One word, we translate it both righteousness and justice. Same word. 
righteous, when we think of righteous as a kind of, uh, we often think of that as kind of a moral quality. You know, somebody is righteous, they're a holy person or something like that. Whereas we think of, of justice in terms of much broader and more social understanding of, of the way in which uh, we work. Again, in biblical language, one word. Um, and what this word is meaning, what this word is getting at, when we say that God is righteous or God is just, what are we saying? God is going to keep his word. Right? God makes, let's go back to the, to the covenant language. God makes a covenant with his people. God makes a covenant with Adam, makes a covenant with, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses. God is the one who keeps his promise. Does Israel keep his, keep his promise? He tries. Every now and again. <laughs> Every now and again. <laughs> but ultimately not. And so, who is the righteous Israel. Who is the righteous Israelite? Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Because Jesus is God's righteousness. He is God's promise. He is the vow-keeping God, right? So Jesus is God making good on his vows, on his promise to God. So this is what we're getting at when we say, well, well, you know, why do we keep our vows? Why do we keep our promises? Uh, because we're reflecting this image of this vow-keeping God. Christ is God's, God's faithfulness. God's, he is God's name. And in, in being God's name, he is God's promise to his people, right? He's the, he's, God is making good. Israel doesn't, can't keep its end of the bargain, can't keep its part of the covenant, right? So God comes as an as a Israelite, as a man, a human being, but also as God because his vows aren't going to be broken, right? He's going to be who he will be. I am that I am. In sort of classical theology language, this is God's um, uh, impassibility. God is not liable to change, right? He's not just going to change his mind. Ah, sorry, didn't work out. I tried. Good try, Israel, you know, but, you know, couldn't do it. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to go with a different plan. No, he doesn't. He keeps his vows, and he keeps it by becoming one of, one of us, by dying on a cross, all because God is faithful. God is just. And this is a way of, another way of saying, um, God's name is holy. God's name is sacred. God's name reveals his nature, his character, his power, his purposes. Okay, much more we could, we could say about keeping God's name. It's not, it's not only about, you know, whether you, you swear or, or you know, say bad, bad language and, and invoke God's name poorly in that way. That's part of it. There's a, that's, that's certainly part of it. But uh, this commandment is about much more than that. It's about our lives and our actions, the way we live, the way we reflect God, the way that names, the way that words carry sacred meaning in the world, the way in which words themselves reflect either poorly or well the nature of God. Right? All right, questions or? Yeah, <laughs> I guess. That's good grandmotherly wisdom. That's just good. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Put those bumper stickers on your car, you know? That's the that's the best one, you know? You got those Christian bumper stickers and you drive like a maniac, you know? I love that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. By what should we vow? Is that what you said? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we make uh, contracts and we, uh, we pay lawyers lots of money uh, in order to, um, to do this. But why do we, why do, we do this? Right? It's because our, our yeses don't mean yes and our, our noes don't mean no. Um, there's a similar logic to, um, you know, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, well, well, Moses said we could, Moses gave us a certificate for a divorce. Right, we could we could get divorced, and what does Jesus say? Because of your heart is of hearts, right? And but from the beginning, it was not this way, right? The, from the beginning, if we translate it back to this context, we say from the beginning, it was let you yes mean yes, and you no know, mean no. Um, and why? Because that we're made in the image of God, it reflects God's character, right? Um, yeah. So again, this is it's a really it's a really rich discussion about what does it mean to take God's name sacredly, right? To keep God's name, to let that name uh, bear out in your life, to let that be reflected in in one's life. Um, Let's begin the fourth commandment um, and begin some of this this discussion. This is great. There's lots lots here, too. We We won't get it all today, but Let's begin with uh, question 290. What is the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Let's keep going. Question 291. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy? Sabbath is from the Hebrew Shabbat, which means rest. Holy means set apart for God's purposes. God commanded Israel to set apart each seventh day following six days of work for rest and worship. So this is one of those where we can see um, two, this is where the commandments in, remember there's two forms of the Ten Commandments, right? One in Exodus and one in Deuteronomy, right? Moses' sort of parting speech. 
So in Exodus 20, I'm just going to read this. We'll read both of them and notice, notice the difference. So in, the, in Exodus 20, it says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. All right. Hold that. Hold that thought. And we'll go over to Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5, Moses says, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien in your towns, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What's the, what's the two differences there? What did you notice? It's the different rationale behind each one, right? The command is roughly the same. Keep the Sabbath, you know, rest from all your work, and this includes the resident aliens among you, right? In the first passage, it looks to God's work in creation. You keep the Sabbath holy because as we were saying about keeping God's name. It reflects God's, God's image, it reflects God's character. God rested on the seventh day. You rest on the seventh day. This is something, something about the way in which God made the world. He made the world in a sort of uh, a pattern, a rhythm. There's a, there's, a, there's a pattern, there's a rhyme to God's creation of the world. He works for seven days and, and rests on the seventh. There's a logic to creation uh, in which work and rest follow in this, in this sort of pattern. In Deuteronomy, the rationale is quite different, right? What's the rationale there? You were slaves, right? You worked seven days a week, every single day, without a rest. But God freed you from slavery. And again, as we were talking about the first day, why did God free you from slavery? So you do what you want. <laughs> God frees you in order to be truly free, to be free in, in God's life, to be free in the way that God is, is free, right? So you were enslaved. You have, been, you have been freed. Don't just go back to the same patterns, the same patterns of enslavement uh, that you were in. God freed you in order to, to be truly free. And so... And, and part of that is, again, living in tune with creation. So there's two different rationales. One is reflecting of God's creation. And another is, because you were once enslaved, don't go back to that. But they're, they're, there's, a, there's a logic there. There's an integration between those two, right? They are they're calling us to, um, out of a, 
an enslaved pattern of of life and work. Um, So this commandment uh, has lots to say about time, about rest, but about work itself, right? Because when we rest uh, on the Sabbath, when we keep the Sabbath holy in this kind of way, um, it doesn't just implicate what we do for one day a week. It shapes the whole rest of the week, shapes all of, all of our time. So Sabbath means rest, right? And holy means set apart, consecrated. Um, God commanded Israel to set apart each day six days of work for, for rest, and one for rest and for worship. So question 292, why was Israel to rest on the Sabbath? Israel was called to rest in remembrance that God had freed them from slavery and that God rested from his work of creation, bringing joyful balance and rhythm to life, work, and worship. And this is, again, what what we were saying. There's two fundamental aspects to the Sabbath keeping. There's It's it's a a restoring of balance and rhythm to life, work, and worship. Just as, as in the first commandment, we're saying we don't, we don't know how to use the stuff of the world, or excuse me, the second commandment, when we talk about idols, we don't know how to use the stuff of the world. The second commandment trains us how to use material creation. Uh, the third commandment about trains us to, to use words in a way that, that reverence and reflect God. This, again, is a way of using time. How does, how does um, God's fundamental... Uh, command, the first commandment, to have no other gods, how does that shape our time, what we do with our time and our work? Um, so Israel, we see these two, two different ways of phrasing this commandment, the rationale, in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, question 293, though, asks, how did Jesus teach us to keep the Sabbath? Question 293, how did Jesus teach us to keep the Sabbath? As Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus taught us to keep it, not merely as a duty, but as a gift of God to be received with joy and extended to others through acts of love and hospitality. All right, so by, we see this, uh, this is Sabbath keeping in Jesus' time is one of the main markers of sort of Jewish identity. How do you know who is a, is a faithful Jew and who's a kind of so-so Jew and who's not a Jew at all? Right, so the 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 non-Jew, the pagan, <laughs> the heathen, is one who will not keep the Sabbath at all. Right, a sort of you know not so great Jew. What's the, what's he going to do? He's going to keep the Sabbath so-so. Right, he's going to you know he's going to he's going to he's going to rest. He's going to you know say that he keeps the the Sabbath day, but you know he's still going to still got to do some stuff. Right, he's still got to walk so far. Well, a way in which way in which Jews could, would separate themselves, sort of distinguish who is, a, who is a, a real Jew, a faithful Jew, as one who keeps the Sabbath absolutely strictly. Um, so there's, there's other aspects of this in Jesus' time, but Sabbath-keeping is a big one. This is why uh, the Pharisees, Jesus is always talking with the Pharisees about Sabbath-keeping, right? And so they develop very precise laws, restrictions on what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy, I mean, you couldn't walk but so far in a day. You couldn't do this, right? And Jesus goes around sort of flouting all of these laws. He's picking grain on the Sabbath. You know, he's doing all this stuff. And everybody's like, what are you doing? 
this is outrageous for somebody who claims to be, you know, a good Jew, a good rabbi uh, to be doing. And so in this debate, though, Jesus reveals the heart of the Sabbath, which is what? What? To do good? What does he say? Sabbath is made for what? Exactly. Yeah, David. Yeah. Great question. So there's, I mean, the, the consequences for breaking Sabbath in, in the Old Testament law are extreme, as they are for all, all the laws. We didn't read uh, about the, uh, the one, one of our, this points, points to this in uh, Leviticus 24, is a nice, lovely little story about a, someone who blasphemes the name of God and it's the same consequence, like stoning, you're done. Uh, same, with, same with Sabbath breaking, right? So there's these very, to, to our mind, uh, extreme uh, you know, consequences for, for breaking these commandments. Why is that? Why these extreme, extreme commands? And then what does Jesus do, do with those? <laughs> what is... Yeah. <laughs> we might, but <laughs> we die in different ways. Yeah. 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 This is a, a classic way in which Israel is going to want to be like the other nations, to take up not only their gods, uh, to take up their idols, but also their way of life. Like, Israel's always prone to go back to Egypt in more ways than one, right? Taylor, were you going to say something? You break it all. All right. I think you're right, David, that there's this um, pedagogical aspect or making clear what is manifestly not clear which is that sin leads to death, right? And I think that's why you get, that'd be my take on why this extreme language is because there, there's a, in a setting where you have no sort of, no sort of distinctions, no sort of, no sort of clarity, this is a way of making clear sin leads to death, right? And, 
and it will one way or the other. <laughs> uh, and so these are, and so this is part of the reason why Israel rightly, there's a, there's a good impulse in wanting to keep these, these restrictions. Um, but they keep it in such a way, this is, this, this is just a perfect example of the nature of sin. By keep, you, you keep the law in such a way that it adds heaps and burdens to, to Israel's way of life. And so Jesus comes to, to unlock the heart of the Sabbath, which is to say, Sabbath is a gift. It's a gift. Sabbath was made for you. It was made to, to unlock you from, from slavery and sin and death, to, um, to free you from, from these ways of life. So, so Jesus comes and he opens up this, this Sabbath for us. Um, we'll talk more about this next time. Father Nicholas, I believe, will be, will be back leading this this motley crew uh, next time and for the next few weeks. So we look forward to that. Um, but for now, we need to, to pause and we'll begin worship shortly. Thanks. <laughs>